I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. I've dedicated a big chunk of my career to improving education around the world, and I've met many people who are passionate about the transformative power of education. Then I met Malala Yousafzai and her father Ziadin. I found a degree of passion for education, especially girls' education, far beyond anything I had previously encountered. Malala's passion for education dramatically changed her life. After she was shot in 2012 for opposing Taliban restrictions on girls' education in her home country of Pakistan, she became a symbol of the fight for girls' education all around the world. After receiving treatment for her life-threatening injuries, she continued her education in the UK. She also continued her campaign for education rights, and in 2014, aged just 17, Malala became the youngest person ever to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. When she was growing up in the Swat Valley in Pakistan, she was a student at the school run by her father, who believed that she, and every other girl, had a right to education. She spoke out about it again and again and again, even though it was dangerous to do so. The Swat Valley is a special place. I asked Malala what it was like growing up in paradise before the Taliban arrived. I am really proud of my background and where I grew up. I come from a valley in the north of Pakistan called Swat Valley. And I was born surrounded by those lush green hills and mountains and we used to play with our friends on the riversides. We were very close to nature and I did not realize that it was such a blessing until I came to the UK. Uh, We were in Birmingham and I looked outside the window of the hospital room and I saw no mountains, no rivers, no greenery, just a few trees here and there and bricks and cemented walls. And that's when I realized that it's a place not found everywhere. I've been to Swat Valley a few more times now after we moved to the UK. uh, And it's as beautiful as it was. It's a welcoming valley. It sounds a bit like a kind of paradise on earth with flowing water, with greenery, with uh, close to nature, as you say. You had a very happy childhood with Uh, your family, your two brothers, your mother and your father, they called you Malala after somebody famous in history. And I don't think many listeners will be aware of that story. My dad was very passionate about gender equality. He knew that women do not have equal opportunities. And he saw that with his own five sisters who could not get their education while he could. And it was simply because he was a boy. And he knew that he had to do something for his daughter to ensure that she does not get discriminated. Um, So firstly, he celebrated the birth of a daughter, and then he decided to name her after an Afghan heroine, Malalai of Maiwand. Uh, She was from Afghanistan. She participated in the Second Anglo-Afghan War, and she is known for encouraging the soldiers on the battlefield to not give up and come back and fight back. And she is now part of our literature, of our history, and her poetry is shared widely. And she told the soldiers that it is better to live as a hero on this battlefield than to live in shame forever. So uh, she sent that message of bravery and courage. 
we had no idea where my name was going to take me, but uh, my dad named me after her. Another reason for that was that we do not have that many women who are known by their own names. So my father was inspired that we had a figure in our history who was known by her own name as a, as a young woman. Your father was, as you say, he was passionate about education and specifically about girls' education from before you were born. But he also established and ran a very good school, which you attended as a school child. Uh, what was that school like? I, I read your book and his book, and I get this sense of you being very committed to learning, the school being a happy place where you had good friends. Have I got the right impression there? That is the right impression. In school, I was a studious student. I loved my homework. I loved my books. I loved my stationery. I loved classrooms. Uh, my mom tells me that when I was a little toddler, I would love being in a classroom and I would mimic a teacher as if I was the teacher of the classroom. It was probably uh, my upbringing that helped me connect with school more closely. And my father was the principal of the school. So we were surrounded by teachers and students all the time. And I knew that education was very important for girls, for women. It was not a luxury. It was not a privilege. It was a human right that many girls did not have access to. So for me, it was important not to take it for granted. Yes. And, and your mother, although not so much of a public figure as your father, was absolutely committed to those same goals, I believe. My mother could not uh, complete her education. She dropped out of school at the age of six. But because she could not see a future for herself in completing her education and her family members also did not care whether she was in school or not, my mom never returned to school. But years and years later, she's in the UK now. She's learning how to use a computer. She's learning English. She's learning mathematics. She is a very committed student. And my mom, even though she had not received her formal education in school, always encouraged me and my brothers to work hard in our studies. She is a, a strong, courageous woman. My dad and I both get an inspiration from her. From quite an early age, in addition to being a good student and reading books, you became increasingly active alongside your father in promoting education, particularly for girls, when you were still quite a young girl. That's right, isn't it? I started my activism from a very young age. That's because the situation in Swat Valley changed drastically. In 2007, uh, a militant group named the Taliban appeared. That's about when you're 10 years old. Uh, yes, so to... I, was, I was 10 years old. The Taliban appear and they claim that uh, they are going to bring the true so-called Islam and they target women. They want to erase women from society, from work from school, from education. They ban girls from going to school. They ban women from going to work. They bombed more than 400 schools. And I was I was a student at that time and we could not go to school safely. There used to be curfews. There were firing and shelling and, and the military was there to protect our area. So we were living in a conflict zone for those two years from 2007 till 2009. We also faced internal displacement. A point also came where the Taliban completely banned girls' education. They announced that no single girl could go to school. And I remember just waking up that morning thinking, why is it that I cannot go to school while my brothers can go to school? And the reason was that I was a girl. My gender was the only reason for why I could not be in a classroom. And this is the reality of so many women today as well, 
we know in afghanistan right now girls have been banned from secondary school from universities as well and the only reasons for that is that they're women they're girls and they cannot have this basic human right this might be a good place to ask you about islam i as you know have been to pakistan many times and tried to learn about islam read the history and all of that but i wonder if our listeners i think they would love to hear you talk about the distinction between this very damaging interpretation of islam that the taliban take my understanding is if you go back to the prophet himself and many people through history there's a passionate commitment in the heart of islam to education for everybody i'd love to hear you talk about that because i think you're a very committed muslim but people need to understand what that really means islam does not have any uh, support for the claims that the taliban make or any other islamic terrorist group make islam actually encourages people to seek knowledge to reason to seek evidence and islam says that it is your responsibility as a man and a woman to get your education and the first word of the holy quran is iqra which means read and the wife of prophet peace be upon him was a businesswoman so in islam even in in that time women were encouraged to participate in work women were encouraged to participate in in politics it was never an issue it was never uh, a problem for women to be in the workforce and to be participating in these different spheres of life so the narrative that currently the taliban are using has no evidence uh, they sometimes try to defend it as a cultural thing sometimes they say that it's part of religion but unfortunately it's frustrating because i hope that the people who claim to be uh, the champions of the religion at least read the script because they would not find anywhere in the script that a girl can be stopped from going to school or work and i just want to take you back to your story now so with that understanding you and your father were passionately campaigning for education for everybody but especially for girls because they had been neglected your father's school made a big priority of that and then as you got older you and he began to campaign and the taliban takeover of your area wasn't like that was it it was a kind of insidious thing with first of all somebody speaking over loudspeakers and setting yes. the rules and eventually closing in and closing down the schools you and your father were uh, supported by your mother were brave and courageous in continuing that campaign even after the taliban takeover what did that feel like as a young girl to be putting yourself at risk you must have known you were at risk before the terrible shooting we went through some of the worst scary nights during the taliban time uh, they would walk into people's houses burn their tvs and even execute people so it was a terrifying time and we knew that nothing would change if we remain still and quiet change comes when somebody steps up and speaks out and of course it's not the voice of one person but if that one person remains committed and loud enough and other people join and they consistently speak out their voices will be heard somewhere in a corner of the world and it will put pressure on the responsible leaders to take some action 
So it was definitely the activism of people in Swat, including my dad, and I also participated, that led to the rehabilitation and restoration of peace in Swat Valley. Uh, by mid-2009, the Taliban had been removed from the valley. We were able to return to our homes after internal displacement for three months. And we also knew that this was not going to be an easy journey, even after the Taliban had left, because so many schools had been bombed, so many houses had been damaged in this conflict. There was going to be a whole process of reconstruction, but also like the situation that the people went through, we needed some time to rehabilitate from what we had seen. But along with that, the fact that girls are out of school, there are many reasons for that. It is not limited to the presence of some extremist groups. Unfortunately, there are social norms on the one hand that could prevent families from sending their, their daughters to school because they do not consider girls to be equal or they do not consider their, their education to be as useful as the boys' education. And then on the other hand, there are supply side issues where there is lack of infrastructure, lack of quality teachers, lack of facilities and support in classrooms that girls could be kept in school. So it goes both ways. And that's yes. when I decided that I have to continue my advocacy for girls' education in my valley because there's so much more that needs to be done for girls. Yes. Yeah, so for the next years after you'd returned home, after the internal displacement, you were both being an assiduous student, working hard at your schoolwork and campaigning. Sometimes publicly, you had a campaigning blog for girls' education. And your father re had reopened the school and was making the schoolwork, but also a very well-known figure in his whole region. I don't want to make you talk your way through the attack on you on the school bus, but that came out of the blue, did it? You thought that you were kind of rebuilding, you had been rebuilding your lives, and then this terrible moment happened. We did not expect it to happen. Of course, I was worried. And sometimes uh, I would think like, what if a gunman shows, what would I do? And I realized that you know, in order to fight extremism, we have to promote quality education. We have to ensure people have access to equal opportunities. No one is left behind. These are the bigger questions that we need to address rather than just blaming one individual. We need to look for the root cause of the challenges that we're facing in our society. And I was probably, you know, more worried about my dad than myself because you just think for a second and you wonder like how cruel can the Taliban be that they would attack a 15-year-old girl? They would not attack a child. But that was sadly not true. I don't remember the incident. So I, you know, I know what like my friends told me and uh, I was taken from like one hospital to another. And then after seven days, I was also put in an induced coma. I was brought to the UK. But I, I don't remember any of that. All right. I remember is my last day of school, doing well in my exam. I was really happy, excited for the next day, went on uh, on the school bus. But that journey became a very long journey back home. Yes. So I was brought to Birmingham in the UK. One of the heroes of this story, obviously for you, you've forgotten it, and that's probably a good thing. There was a British doctor who I think you were called Dr. Fiona, who yes. ha happened to be there. That is correct, yes. Uh, and it was just... Uh, luck that she was there and she knew how to handle intensive care. So she put in the right measures and uh, then she helped in bringing me to the UK as well. She was there with me in the hospital. She was my caretaker. The doctors and nurses in the hospital really helped me in my recovery 
and I was known to be a patient patient. I knew that a, a lot had happened, that there were you know deep wounds and it will take time to recover and to get better. But I also knew that this was a huge setback in the work I was doing and I need to rethink about how I live the coming years of my life. What do I do in my life? So I, I, I had a lot to reflect on. And Birmingham, as you were saying earlier, wasn't beautiful, but there were some people who are yes. very committed, genuine, thoughtful people who helped you and your family establish yourselves in a new country so different from the Swat Valley. You, you settled here, but you had, you had already become, before the attack, you'd become quite well known in Pakistan. I think you'd already met a prime minister. Your name was known. But after the attack and when you made what to many must have seemed a miraculous recovery, you were even more famous. How did that feel? If I'm honest, at that time when I was 15, 16 years old, I did not know what was happening. I was very passionate about the mission. So I did not hesitate in speaking out. I was very confident in advocating for girls' education. And I wanted to share my story. Now, when I look back, I realize, oh, like I was at, I was at the UN. That was a big deal. Or, or just getting the opportunity to meet world leaders and sit with them and advocate for the rights of all girls to have access to school. So I felt blessed that I was at a stage where I could not just talk about my own education or the education of girls of Swat, but I could talk about the education of all those millions of girls around the world who cannot go to school and, and remind people that, look at my story, where I have come through education. I have completed my university. I'm here doing so many projects. I'm currently an executive producer. I'm producing movies. I have an organization with 100 people working and more than 100 people who we support as activists. I am writing books and, and so many other things. And it is possible through the education that I have received. Imagine for a second that that 11-year-old Malala had not spoken out or no one had taken action at that time, she would have never seen her classroom again and her life would have been very different. I'm not going to compare everyone right now to me, but I'm just saying that education has the power to transform a person's life, especially a woman when she is already facing so many challenges. Education can be the only hope for her. You said earlier that education is an absolutely fundamental element of ending conflict uh, and bringing a more peaceful world. So the, the Nobel Peace Prize, which represents all that you've just been describing and helped extend your reach, as you were saying, uh, that also came out of the blue. So I knew there were a lot of petitions. Uh, people were supporting me to get the Nobel Peace Prize. I did not expect it at all. I thought there's like 0. 0.00000 forever 1% chance uh, of winning it. I went to school on that day. I was still a GCSE student. I, you know, I said my school is important more than anything else. I did not have a mobile phone at that time either. So I was in my chemistry class. I was learning about atoms and, and nucleus. And uh, my school's deputy head teacher showed up in the classroom and she called me outside. And she usually calls you when you are in trouble. So I was a bit worried if I had done anything. She told me that I had won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I was like, phew, you know, not too bad. <laughs> I'm not in trouble, not in big trouble. And that was such an amazing day. It was a beautiful moment for me to be in a classroom and to hear about winning the Nobel Peace Prize. It felt that it was reflecting my mission. 
And uh, I decided that I would finish my school and then go and do my press interviews. So I, I stayed in school till 4 p.m. I attended all my so classes. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, that's such a lovely touch yeah. and uh, it will be forever representative of your passionate commitment to education for yourself and others when there are many distractions. Soon after that time, you set up the Malala Fund. And I was contacted by, I don't know who it was that was working with you to set up the Malala Fund. Uh, and they asked me, what should the Malala Fund do? Uh, I think you were 16 years yes. old. I said, whatever else she does, she must complete school. Uh, <laughs> and if she wants to go to university, go to university and get a degree and do all those things that will round off this amazing education journey. They're more important than anything that you do as a fund in the in the short term. Uh, uh, I, I listened say, to you. I listened to you. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Well, you've, you've done brilliantly. You, yes. you completed your A-levels. You went to a good school in Birmingham. You got into Oxford University. You finished your degree. I think you enjoyed studying in Oxford. Is that right? I loved it very much, very much. And now you're beyond that. And your passion for the cause that's been the cause for your whole life is undimmed. One of your heroes in life is Benazir Bhutto, who was Prime Minister of Pakistan in the 1990s and then again in the late 2000s and was very, very tragically assassinated in Rawalpindi. And one of the things she said is, I didn't choose this life, it chose me. Uh, because she was the daughter of her father, yes. there was the whole tragedy mm -hmm. of her father's overthrow. And she it was as though she had no choice in life. This was what she had to do. And I sometimes wonder if you think the same. Did you leave Oxford and think, actually, I'd really like to be a lawyer now, or I'd really like to uh, be a journalist? Or did you, the life has chosen you rather than you choosing the life? I would say it, it is mutual. I wanted to be an activist from a very young age. And I knew that people's contribution to their community is important for creating a more equal community. So I had been passionate about activism. And I think that's partly because of the activism of my dad as well. When you have a role model in, in your house that inspires you to become an activist. I also wonder sometimes, I'm like, why did I choose this? And <laughs> Even for me, it's really hard to find the answer. And to be honest, we all would go through these questions sometimes to wonder why we picked this path and not the other. I like uh, connecting with people. I like reminding people to play a better role in creating a safer, peaceful community for, for everyone else. And I do not think that everyone should become like an activist who does protest on the street every day. Activism has a broader definition as well, where everyone can play a role in their profession, in their capacity, uh, in their workspace, whether they are playing that role as a dad in their home or as a teacher in a school or as a doctor in a hospital. There is a role that we all can play with responsibility where we ensure that we are bringing more positives to the world. When you talk about activism, it's any act you take, in your, it could be in your private home, in your community, or national or international level, but it's an act you decide on in order to advance a, a cause that's important to the future of the world. Is that how you think about activism? 100%. Activism is deliberate actions that we take, and it could be on a small individual level, or it could be on a bigger level. 
It could be a collective action as well, together with a group or, or organization. And I know we can narrow down the definition, and uh, and and you know, it's it, it's a whole different field. But in general, I think that everyone has the opportunity uh, to become an activist. Here you are, age twenty-five. And you've got a, an organization that is globally known, the Malala Fund, campaigning for what you believe in and actively supporting what you believe in, education for all, especially for girls. And you've set a goal along with the UN goals that every girl should be in school by 2030. And here we are in 2023. And I see what you're trying to do now in Afghanistan, where things seem to be in that respect going mm-hmm. backwards. How do you think about the next few years? What impacts do you want to make on the world? What do you hope to achieve? At Malala Fund, we work in three ways. One is to support local education activists. Second is holding leaders to account in the commitments that they have made for education. And then the last one is amplifying girls' voices around the world. And in our advocacy, we are focusing on financing for education. There's a huge gap in financial contribution and support for education. And for as long as that gap is there, we would see lack of schools, uh, supplies, infrastructure, teachers, books, and other facilities. On the other hand, we also know that leaders need to take it a bit more seriously and run campaigning, run initiatives that can encourage more parents to send their daughters, to send their kids to schools. And we also know that it is not just limited to the role of the government, but NGOs and other activists can also play a role where they can engage with the communities directly, they can engage with the parents and encourage them to send their uh, kids to school and girls themselves can become activists as well. And their power, their voice can be really powerful in spreading the message of uh, girls' education. If I could just ask something challenging, because I've seen education in developing countries all over the world and in developed countries. And sometimes I see money is raised and the, the way it's spent doesn't result in yeah. what you would hope for or what I hope for. I've walked off the street into a school, I won't name the country, and seen children there but the teacher's not working i've walked into empty school buildings that have been built where there are no teachers in more than one country i think yes i do want to raise all that money but also i want to ensure that the people who raise the money then turn it into really effective implementation of education policy that benefits the children currently in school how does the malala fund think about that challenge because it's quite real yeah I I fully agree. And I have also seen it like growing up in Pakistan in uh, some parts of the country, you see ghost schools. These are just empty schools with no teachers, no students, or there could be a classroom of 100 students with just one teacher. And that is from grade one to five. Like how can one teacher teach all those grades all at once? Or uh, they just put a tick mark in a, in a register and they show their attendance, but never actually teach the students. So at the same time, there's lack of sanitary products. And when girls are on their periods, they miss days of school if they do not have the facilities or if they do not have toilets or other transport facilities as well. Safety is also an issue. My view is that firstly, it requires work from all sides. You need to think about the school, you need to think about the teachers, you need to think about the students, the parents, and you need to be addressing the issues from all sides. Along with that, the organizations who do advocacy for financing for education or um, or improvement in, in the quality of education 
need to stay there like don't go anywhere until the job is done and that's yes. why malala fund is not going anywhere uh, it is a lot of work and to be honest like this organization has been there for 10 years now and i have learned so much along the way initially when i was asked about what i wanted to do i said i want every girl to be in school that's it and they said no no like just you know pick one country or maybe one village and i said no 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 like we have to work for all girls we're not going to leave any girl behind so that was a big commitment and i learned along the way that yes we need to start from somewhere and uh, we will grow with time but i believe that if leaders have made this commitment that by 2030 all children including girls should have access to safe quality and free education then they need to fulfill that commitment it is their promise they have made the promise we are just reminding them that don't forget that promise don't forget the girls don't forget the children they are the future and we know that education is important not just for the children but for our global economy as well for our national economies as well when girls have access to complete quality education it adds up to 30 trillion dollars to the world economy when girls are educated they are much safer they are in a better position to protect their rights themselves as well they're more likely to have a safer and healthier family we are also more likely to have improved economies and less likely to go into wars so if you look at the research work for like a sustainable future for also addressing climate related issues gender equality and girls education is always there it's in the top recommendations it's at the center of most of these problems it's actually genuinely inspiring listening to you we're coming towards the end of the time and i just want to take you back to pakistan your homeland and i know you you mentioned earlier on that you've been back to the swat valley and it was still beautiful what was it like going back the first time after all the the trauma of going to birmingham and getting an education in britain and uh, a nobel prize and then there you are back where you'd grown up how did that feel the valley was as green and as beautiful as it was before i met my friends i went uh, to my neighborhood i saw my old rented home as well it was just a surreal experience and i always felt incomplete before that i felt something was yes. missing and when i went home that was when i could say for the first time that i feel complete it's hard to describe it in words but i felt complete and fulfilled and i am really grateful that i have been able to go to pakistan more times after that i went to karachi recently and then lahore as well and uh, we are supporting so many projects in pakistan i was able to meet the education activists who are doing an incredible work in pakistan for improving the quality of education i also was able to meet some of the politicians and the and the leaders as well and really there is you know there is hope for a commitment towards the quality of education of all pakistani children and uh, pakistan comes second after nigeria on the list of the highest number of children out of school my goal is to remind all of these countries that we can change that we live in a world where millions of children are out of school we can change that think about how huge a loss that is to the world to those children to their families to those communities education is transformative and uh, this is something that leaders should not underestimate they should definitely think about its social and economic impact and prioritize it as an investment
you kind of introduced me to the people in your organization in Pakistan. And last time I was there, I met them and it was very inspiring. And I also met uh, somebody you and I both know, the famous rock musician, Shezad Roy, who I think is the coolest man on the planet. He has this amazing school that you and I both know in Karachi. But I think you've now funded him to uh, help establish a similar school in your original home yes. village. Is that right? That must be an amazing gift to your community. I hope Shazad Rai stays young uh, as he is forever so that we can continue these great projects. And I hope that he lives for three, four hundred years, if that's possible. <laughs> he is such a passionate person. We uh, started a school in, uh, in my parents' hometown or village, and it is a school for girls a state-of-the-art school where girls have access to quality education, but also opportunities that you often do not see in a typical school. We ensure that girls can have access to sports, different speech and writing competitions. They even play chess. They are singing. They are writing poetry. They are participating in different competitions, and they are doing really well in their exams as well. I'm really excited because uh, it has really challenged the view in that whole village where girls were underestimated before. So the girls have already told their parents that they need to trust them and these girls will make them proud and they will make their whole village proud of what they do next in their lives. They want to contribute back to the community. They want to become teachers, advocates, doctors, engineers, uh, and they want to do something for their country as well. And the work that we do with Shazad Roy also includes teachers training as well. They have started a bachelor's and a master's program for teachers training. So that is happening. Uh, there's a lot of work happening in different countries from Pakistan to Nigeria to Brazil. There are changes in the legislations at the state level, at the national level. And I hope that when we look back in five, six years, we will see the outcome of these changes that we are making now. I hope that it would be impacting millions and millions of children. When I hear you talk about the global challenge, but also about your own community and that sense of going home and feeling complete, um, I found it quite emotional. <laughs> when you arrived back in your village for the first time after that, did it bring a tear to your eye? When I went back to Pakistan, yes, I did cry. And I do not cry in public um, right, right. at all, um, though it's you know it's it's tough it's tough but when i was there uh, in islamabad in swat valley i could not stop my tears yeah it must uh, be amazing <laughs> i yeah. think that's necessary and beautiful thank you very much for your time malala it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you congratulations on everything you've achieved and best of luck with the many more things you will accomplish in future Thank you so much, Michael. And I read your book, Accomplishments. And uh, it's hard to call any of this accomplishment yet because when you have a big dream where you want to see every child in school, you feel like you can accomplish more. So the small accomplishments then contribute to the bigger accomplishment that you want to see. And it doesn't stop there either. You want to bring a change in the whole community, in, in the social norms, in the thinking, in the perspectives. You want to ensure that people hear more voices. They hear more stories as well. Thank you for all that you have done. And uh, at Malala Fund, we also have a digital newsletter called Assembly, which is for girls, by girls, and girls are sharing their stories on that. So I feel honored that we are at least able to bring the voices of young girls forward to this platform where they talk about 
not just the problems that they're facing, but also how they are addressing those problems, how they're becoming change makers in their community. Young people have the opportunity to become activists. They have the enthusiasm and the passion as well. So I hope that whoever is listening to it, young from whatever area, old, you know, wherever you are, think about what role you can play in making the world a better place for all and what can you do for the education of millions of children who do not get the chance to go to school. But it was just so wonderful speaking to you and I hope that we see the day when this number goes down to zero and all children are in school. I am confident you will see that day. I'm a lot older than you. I'm hoping I too will see the day. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my special thanks to guest Malala Yousafzai. And you can check out the digital newsletter assembly at malala.org. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Also, don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team. Thank you.